Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Maddie Cizerwinski, the Director of Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal and a Women's Leaders in Energy Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Maddie, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Chris. Always delighted to be on Decouple. Well, yeah, you were on uh, November of 2020. Um, you know, I pride myself on sort of getting the scoop. Um, and I've been really lucky to have people on for their first interview. Um, you know, some of my favorites were Meredith Angwin. I, I read the preprint and, and got her first interview, broke the news on that amazing resource that I seem to reference, like in just about every single podcast probably I already have today, but, um, you know, we had Zion lights on, uh, I think for her first interview, there's been a few others. Anyway, I won't pat my back too much. Um, a lot's happened, uh, I think with you since we last talked a lot of water on the bridge and I understand, um, some maybe good, maybe bad or both, um, changes to sort of the energy zeitgeist in the U S which I'm, I'm really excited to sort of catch up on. Um, for those who haven't uh, listened already uh, to Maddie's amazing interview on Robert Bryce's Power Hungry podcast, make sure you check that out. It was uh, an amazing part of his Blackout Week series um, on the shuttering of Indian Point. And today um, I've got Maddie back. Um, and unfortunately, um, it's very pertinent to the closure of Indian Point. We're going to be talking about um, the nuclear power plants that are under threat in Illinois, and I think look a little bit at what we can learn from Indian Point, um, what we can do about it, because there's still a bit of time, Maddie, I understand. We got about two weeks. Wow. Okay. So that makes this all the more urgent. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> dear listeners, um, let's get on with this. Um, Maddie, before we get into, um, I don't want to call it the depressing side, but into that struggle, um, again, we had an earlier kind of off-air conversations, um, catching up on what's been going on in the last six, seven months since we talked. You, you were actually saying, hey, there's some really great things that have been happening south of the border. So let's, let's start in a bright place. Yeah, so I mean, things that give me hope since the last time we've spoken. Um, in March, Vogel started hot functional testing, and it looks like the first reactor is going to be delivered or come online in December of this year. And for people following along with the project, there were definitely times along the way where we just weren't sure if Southern was going to keep on going and if these AP1000s were ever going to see the light of day. So yeah. that's really exciting. And then two new or two more nuclear plants received 20-year life extensions recently, Peach Bottom and Surrey nuclear power plants. So they're going to continue operating for at least the next two decades, if not beyond that. Now so that the that, NRC that'll get them into their 60s or into their 80s. 80s. And now oh. the NRC is looking at life extensions out to hundred years and beyond. And instead of those 20 year increments, possibly looking at licensing for 40 year increments, which is wow. great. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just reading Emmett Penny's uh, most recent piece in, I think it's in the American Conservative of all places. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, very consistent argument. He's still very true to his left roots, but I think has a pretty devastating critique of, of the left and its, um, 
what did he say again? It was kind of this uh, lack of any kind of engineering expertise in the modern left, um, as well as this kind of uh, combination of, uh, I'm, I'm not going to state it as well as he did, but basically this kind of catastrophism and presentism and, and a failure to preserve um, some of the legacies of the past because of a you know, overly broad critique. I, I'm gonna I'm, go read the piece. It's awesome. Yeah, it's but he, you know, what he really talked about was this concept of like, you know, these energy cathedral cathedrals that lie at the base of um, American prosperity. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking about these things lasting 100 years, it, it becomes a real a, a metaphor that I think is very apt. Um, so a couple other things, um, I'm not sure if this is brand new or not, but um, the issuing of zero emissions credits um, to sort of balance out the distortions of deregulated energy markets that have been not good for nuclear. Um, that's, that's, is that a new thing this year or that's been going on for a while? So this is the most recent thing was in New Jersey. So back in 2018, 2019, I think 2019. They established their zero emission certificates program for their nuclear plant, basically saying we need to keep these plants online because of their environmental and economic benefits to our states. We're going to give them a modest subsidy to reward them for their zero emissions, reliable electricity generation. Mm -hmm. And the way the legislation works is that they have to re- affirm that decision every three years, which is sort of frustrating because it's, you know, the same battle being fought every three years. So in April, the Public Utilities Commission of New Jersey, all five commissioners unanimously approved the ZECs to continue for the nuclear plant and were pretty strident in their reasoning for keeping their nuclear plants online, saying things like weather-dependent technologies just can't do it. We don't want to go down the same path as California, those sorts of things. So I'm really optimistic about this recognition of nuclear's unique and powerful role in a carbon-free future. So, I mean, it's great for the ratepayers of New Jersey. It's great for the citizens who are going to continue breathing cleaner air. It really stands in stark contrast to what happened to their neighbors in New York, which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, in, in the context of these, um, you know, uh, zero emissions credits, um, you know, there was a, an interesting piece by Robert Bryce, um, again, to reference him again, but he deserves it. Um, and it was looking at sort of comparative subsidies, because I think when people hear about a, a subsidy to nuclear, I think there's a different reaction than, you know, subsidies to wind and solar. But in this piece, you know, he was comparing these subsidies per unit of energy created and, you know, solar was getting 250 times more in federal tax credits than nuclear. Um, and just some other numbers from that article, um, just in 2018 alone, wind and solar got about 9.8 billion in tax credits, hydrocarbons, which people make a stink about, and I think, you know, for good reasons, 3.2 billion, and nuclear got 100 million that year. Um, so, you know, for a potent um, uh, ever on power source, uh, you know, driving US decarbonization and, and keeping emissions, you know, as low as, as possible, I mean, they deserve a little something given that it seems that the, the market has become so problematic. Now, switching back to Illinois, um, I think on our last uh, episode, we were talking about Dresden and Byron and how they were under threat and 
whether Exelon's uh, claims of the plants no longer being economic. I think some of the workers at the plants were a bit complacent because they're saying, hey, it's just a power play. They're going to get what they want. We're not maybe at such risk of losing our jobs. It's looking like, no, <laughs> these jobs are, are really on the line. Can you maybe, um, we've explored this a little bit previously on the podcast, but tell me why um, nuclear plants are, are becoming uneconomic 30, 40 years into their lifespan when they're supposed to have paid off, you know, those crippling um, cost of capital, you know, nuclear is, is very capital intensive and the cost of capital is everything, but typically after 30, 40 years, that's paid off. And then you're running on fairly uh, cheap fuel or very cheap fuel, really. Um, and, you know, the thousand or so, you know, heavily unionized, well-paid workers that run these plants. Why are they, why are these plants um, becoming uneconomic? Yeah, so the nuclear plant closures, I mean, we've talked about this before, but there are two sort of broad groups of closures in the US. There are the solely political closures where the plants are economical, they're competitive with the other fuels um, in their region, they might not be a part of an electricity market, and it's just they're determined to politicians or environmental groups are just determined to have them closed. So we're really talking about the ones that are actually underwater. Um, and those are mostly happening in restructured electricity markets. You've now had Meredith and Eduardo both sort of give a lot of that background context. So I don't want to sort of reinvent the wheel here. But basically what's happening in Illinois is the four plants in the PJM interconnection, which spans from, you know, Illinois to New Jersey, um, they're being forced to compete with historically cheap natural gas and then subsidized renewables, mostly wind coming in from the Great Plains. So this is really depressing local electricity prices. And, and when, you, when you say electricity prices, we're talking about like the every five minute bid in wholesale price, not necessarily the rate payer cost of electricity, right. is that correct? So they're losing, there are, it's so complicated. I mean, God bless Meredith Angwin for writing that book because it is a mess. But basically there are capacity auctions years ahead of time to show like who is going to be sort of on standby, able to deliver and compete in those other five minute increment auctions, if that makes sense. But you receive mm -hmm. revenue for winning those capacity auctions. And Exelon's plants, the nuclear plants aren't clearing those. And so they're losing out on that revenue. Right. And the way that nuclear plants work is like you said, they just, the best way to run them is just always on um, constantly. And so, if you're suddenly having to ramp up and down to accommodate for the weather, wind blowing in um, from the West, then it just becomes a lot more difficult. And right now, Exelon is, you know, in the red and understandably they're a business. It's not their job to say, well, you know, some of our renewables and gas plants are making money. We'll subsidize our struggling nuclear plants and hope for something better in the future. No, they're a business. They say, if this asset is losing money, we have to shut it down. We don't like that. We would rather keep it open, but business is business. Right. It was really interesting talking to uh, Edgardo Sepulveda. Again, I've had him on for two shows. Go back and, and check that out. But he was talking about how 
maybe ironically, maybe not, it tends to be blue states that have these deregulated markets and red states that are still regulated. And that really seems to be determining um, the um, viability, the economic viability of, of these nuclear plants. And listen, I'm fine to keep kind of rehashing and processing this because the economic side of things is not my strong point. So again, so blessed to have um, you know, these experts that are willing to come on the show and, and sort of serve as advisors, really. Um, but, you know, to summarize in terms of my understanding, let me know if I'm off on this, but, you know, we used to structure these markets and anticipate we're going to need this much demand. We'd run baseload and kind of build on top of that. And you'd be paid according to, to the capacity to sort of meet grid reliability standards, et cetera. And now it's, especially in places like Texas, where it's energy only, it's just all about the value of, of these five minute increments. And that can really uh, become quite distorted, as we we're saying with Meredith Angwin's fatal trifecta of, you know, uh, weather dependent renewables backed by gas and, and really needing energy imports. And on that energy import front, let's talk about what's going to happen or what could happen or what will not happen if, uh, if you and your, uh, and your comrades are, are effective. Um, what's the plan to replace these plants? Because you know, something I've noticed with Indian Point closure, um, with the threatened and impending uh, Pickering closure here in Ontario, is that it seems like once the assets are paid for that will be replacing the threatened nuclear plant, it's pretty hard for, you know, the best activists in the world to turn that around. I mean, in, in Ontario, Ontario Power Generation has spent $4.5 billion on the gas assets that will replace Pickering convincing them to change their their minds on a climate argument or a clean air argument it's a bit of a fantasy and similarly with indian point uh, cricket valley um, plant had been built you know you're dealing with major power structures and interests at play once the replacements are there is that the situation in illinois have they been because these this decision i think was only announced a year ago or this threat by exelon so have they had time to source the um the capacity that would replace like it's a lot of generation that would be coming offline right yeah, so a report from the Brattle Group showed that losing the nuclear plants in PJM would result in increased out-of-state fossil fuel burning, primarily in Indiana and Ohio, to the tune of $483 million annually charged mm. to Illinois ratepayers. So it's basically not only that we would be losing an immense amount of union jobs, immense amount of other jobs and economic activity that are supplied by the nuclear plants, but you would get this massive source of tax revenue and jobs pushed out of state to right. increase. In, so yeah, it's a bad deal all around. Nothing specifically has been built in Illinois. Like you said, it's been you know, not even a full year since the announcement, but that just means there's plenty of coal and natural gas capacity in the PJM market that will replace mm -hmm. these two plants. No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I think the NEI did an analysis in Indian Point, and in addition to those sort of thousand uh, jobs directly at the plant, um, another 9,000 indirect jobs, you know, both in-state and federally around the country um, were anticipated to be lost. So, I mean, massive in that regard. And then I think I remember you talking about this on uh, Robert Bryce's podcast, but you said that in some circumstances, uh, subsidies for nuclear actually save the consumer money. And I think that, you know, basically half a billion dollars being spent on out-of-state uh, mostly fossil generation to replace Byron and Dresden. Is that, that, is that the mechanism? Yeah, so... 
Illinois, this, this battle is not new to Illinois. In 2016, there were two of Exelon's nuclear plants in a different interconnection that were facing the same economic problems. And what the legislator did, legislature did is something very similar to New Jersey, which is award zero emissions credits. They're all like either Rex or Zex and they're all slightly different. Right. So I'm trying to keep them straight, but um, yeah, basically modest subsidies to reward the nuclear plants for their reliability and their carbon-free generation. Mm -hmm. And a new um, working paper that came out earlier this year from Carnegie Mellon shows that that actually, those subsidies actually saved Illinois rate payers money. So mm -hmm. that's huge, right? We're talking about modest subsidies being able to keep, I think, around 4,000 union jobs secured, um, 28,000 indirect jobs within the state, keep the tax base, keep 90% of our carbon-free electricity, which is nuclear power, um, mm -hmm. safe for the next couple decades and beyond. That would be huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like you know all of the subsidies that are, are being required, it, it really speaks to the fact that you know, an electricity market is not a free market, you know, as much as people I think are attempting, and maybe that's the ideology or the ideological basis for deregulation is, is that sort of free market fundamentalism. But first of all, this is an essential good. Um, second, second of all, you know, consumers can't really choose their generation sources and, and have that kind of choice. I mean, a lot of the when I was researching uh, deregulation, there was so many and I, I like to go to some YouTube ads to sort of do some uh, less cognitively challenging research in addition to some of the the reading that i do around it but they were all from companies that kind of specialize in creating the right package for you and your business and this is why deregulation is good consumer choice um but you know be, because it's a really imperfect market it's like you need to keep adding on layer upon layer upon layer to try and make it actually function and meet an objective um and and it's good to see that the objective is starting to say, okay, listen, it's not about meeting a percentage of renewables as our goal, but getting to the lowest carbon emissions um, and grid reliability, I think, is being rewarded by these ZECs. Right. I mean, these restructured markets are basically just uh, trying to think of an, a PG-13 word, a screwed up Rube Goldberg machine of just like added crazy complexity that only could be thought up by people who weren't in charge of delivering electricity in the physical world. Like it's so theoretical and crazy. So, and yeah, and it doesn't incentivize reliability, which is the issue that we're seeing in California and Texas. So the first thing Illinois could do to sort of push back against that without completely dismantling the market is at least put nuclear on an even playing field and give it these very modest subsidies. Mm -hmm. So the issue right now is that the governor, Governor Pritzker, acknowledges that the nuclear plants are important to the state's carbon targets, and he wants to keep them online. The issue is what he's offering in his proposed bill is not nearly adequate to protect Byron and Dresden or reverse that decision. And LaSalle and Braidwood, the other two plants, would likely, yeah. it wouldn't do anything for them. So they would still be at, at severe risk. 
And so the question is, you know, what does he know? What do the legislators here know that somehow didn't get passed on to New Jersey where they said, no, $10 a megawatt is absolutely worth it to protect our nuclear plants in the same electricity market. And by the way, their electricity or their nuclear plants don't have the same downside like price exposure as our plants do. So it's not even just like, can we get action passed in the next two weeks, but is it going to be enough, enough to keep Byron and Dresden online and enough to protect the other two plants that will likely be soon to follow? Right, right. Yeah, because I was reading, um, you know, LaSalle, Breadwood, in total, uh, I think at present, there's nine gigawatts of nuclear power at risk, 10% of the nation's total. I mean, I was looking at some projections that were saying by 2050, as things are heading, um, it's looking like there'll only be, I think, eight gigawatts of nuclear online in 2050. Um, obviously, you got something to say about that. And, you know, campaign for green nuclear deal is, is fighting for 50 by 50, 50% nuclear power by 50, uh, 2050. But I mean, you know, Biden has... Uh, said that we're headed towards completely decarbonized electricity by by 2035. I mean, I'm torn because I'm a fan of ambitious goals and and uh, what do I call it again? Um, aspirational politics, shall we say? At the same time, I think, you know, the more that I've learned about this, and it's been such a wonderful journey with Decouple, you know, I think 65 episodes in, you know, I've been reading voraciously, um, you know, really reference Václav Smil a lot, who's done a lot of the, the very numerate work on energy transitions. I mean, it's, it's com- like, to be honest, it's, it's completely unrealistic. Um, but it's even more unrealistic when you're talking about basically allowing your, this, this industry and this sector to, to die um, because of deregulation. And we're going to be doing a show again with Edgardo Sepulveda coming up on, um, basically, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a, murder mystery maybe on um, who got rich off of deregulation because there's a lot of lawyers and other figures who have made a lot of money off this you know the rate the rate payers paid the price um okay so we've talked a bit about what can be done at a state level um this again this this episode's getting very referential but uh robert bryce had a great piece um in January, after I think in, in Biden's uh, inaugural speech, he mentioned, he, you know, climate change was very heavily focused. I think he only mentioned nuclear once or twice and more on the sort of defense side of things. But Bryce said, listen, if you're serious about climate change, then, you know, there should be something like an executive order that there should be no more um, premature closures of nuclear plants. Let's talk a bit more on the, the kind of federal level. Um, I mean, in your opinion, is something like that politically possible or, or um, I don't know, what's, what's your sense of, of what's happening federally? Right. Well, I would say if it, you know, to answer, is it possible? Luckily, political problems are a lot easier problems to solve than physical problems, you know? Right. Right. And so that's on our side for nuclear. The question is, is there the political will to get it done? It's been it's been a lot of talk and not a lot of walk at the federal level thus far. Mm-hmm. The bills that have been proposed have been extremely frustrating um, in terms of a mechanism to actually protect the existing plants. It's something like, um, so all of the plants that are at risk due to economics are going to say how much they need to stay online. 
And then we're going to, the federal government is going to prioritize saving them in order of who needs the least amount of help. Mm, okay. Like it, it makes no sense. Right. Um, and then it's a bit difficult because as rumors swirl about, um, you know, Biden's administration stepping in for these closures, there's been talk that any nuclear plants that are receiving state help won't receive federal help. Mm. So what do they do? Like what, seriously, it's a good question. What it's do a game you do of chicken, right? where yeah. you feel that there is help right around the corner, but you have your plants set to close in like four months and six months respectively. Right. It, it's a big question mark. And, you know, it, so I don't know if that's extremely helpful. What I will say in turn, I think the the issue should be nationalized. I definitely think there it does deserve federal action. And not only because that would obviously do an immense amount for America's climate goals and sort of take care of this all at once, but also because we are seeing a lot of the same groups in all of these local fights. So the same groups that were responsible for the decision to close Diablo Canyon in 2025 are some of the groups intervening and pushing a bill in Illinois called CJA, um, which says, well, all of our new- What does that stand for? It's, again, they're all the same. Let me double check. It's the Climate Energy Jobs Act. I hope that's- no, Not to be confused with it. Clean Energy Jobs Act. Sorry. Not, Not to be confused with the Climate Union Jobs Act. Climate Union okay. Jobs Act. You can see what this is. Yeah. Right. Um, but basically, they say it's an anti-nuclear phase-out bill. They said, we're going to have all of our nuclear gone by 2050, and it's going to be 100% renewable. So mm. they're talking about wiping away 90% of Illinois' clean electricity in the next three decades in an attempt to replace it with wind and solar, um, which hasn't worked for California, which is the early aggressive leader of this strategy. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I, so that's just frustrating. I mean, there's this, yeah. I mean, it, it, with the Indian point closure, there was a lot of language around like, don't worry that clean energy will be offset by new renewables as if the focus is replacing clean energy with clean energy. Although apples and oranges don't really replace each other. Um, but there's also this kind of localism. I mean, that again, like climate is something that doesn't or air pollution as well. They don't respect your, your little territorial boundaries. And I find this happens over and over again, whether it's in Ontario, New York, or Illinois, um, it's not about just offsetting the, the local nuclear that will be shut down. Like this is a global problem, right? And, and these, these, these goals, for instance, I mean, we have to be thinking more globally about this. I mean, I, I, it's been very hard to sort of be kind of neutral on this moving train wreck um, towards, um, you know, <laughs> the, the most sort of apparently concerned people um, driving this train into a, you know, a climate meltdown, uh, catastrophe, whatever we want to call it, right? right. The, the metric that, you know, I, I was kind of uh, frustrated myself for not having heard of before, um, but that was the focus of my last show with Edgardo Sepulveda is the climate abatement cost. And again, kudos to Robert Bryce for bringing this to my attention with his interview with Reiner Kaur. Um, But, you know, this really illustrates the 
I think the reason why we're all so upset about this and have a hard time sort of maintaining our composure um, beyond people losing good jobs and communities being devastated, but just on a decarbonization effort, again, this is a New England study, which I think is going to be largely, you know, reflective of Illinois and New York, but um, the cost to abate one ton of CO2, right? The whole reason that we are adding generation to our system, which we're not necessarily increasing our demand, but we're doing that to displace fossil and, and displace carbon. Rooftop solar, $800 a ton. Utility wind and solar, $300 a ton. An extra $300 if you're backing it up with batteries. So $600 a ton. Nuclear, $25 a ton to displace a ton of CO2. And with a, with a carbon tax at $50, it's really the only one that's quote unquote affordable if that's the price that we're willing to set for carbon. Um, and and you bring up Indian Point, which the same um, organization or analytics firm, Synapse, that right. said in 2017, no guys, we promise Indian Point is gonna be able to be replaced with energy efficiency and renewables. That's the same exact firm that the governor of Illinois just got a report from saying like, oh no, a dollar per megawatt hour for Byron and $3.50 per megawatt hour for Dresden is more than enough. They're not in that much financial duress. Mm -hmm. So you can see, again, we're seeing the same actors basically saying either the nuclear plants can go or, I mean, they can stay, but they barely need anything. And so at this point, you, and let me add, that this same group put out a study that said New Jersey did not need to subsidize its nuclear plants. And that evidence was rejected by the Board of Public Utilities. They mm -hmm. did not decide to accept it as evidence when debating Zex. So again, we're seeing these same groups in all of these fights. It clearly just needs to be a federal action so that it's not on the states because this really is a federal problem and that we're not constantly on our back foot repeating these fights every four years in Illinois, every three years in New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, it would seem like the better model than saying, okay, if you get a state subsidy, nothing from the federals is like the feds could match the state and they could work together. Right. Like it seems as simple as that, if that was the actual objective. Um, but again, I mean, these, these costs, um, when you look at the carbon abatement costs, um, are just a, a total no-brainer. And, you know, again, oh. that's just, for me, this is the new lens through which to, you know, make judgments about any decarbonization tool or technology, oh. whether it's retrofitting our homes, um, whether it's choosing which electricity generation to use. Um, hold on, I think I'm losing you for a second here. Are you, can you still hear me okay? I can hear you, yep. Just broke up a tiny bit. Okay, no worries, no worries. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, the these um, so called green groups, so called climate groups, I think are just really exposing what their agenda is. I mean, they're primarily anti nuclear and only secondarily climate, I'd say probably primarily anti nuclear, secondarily, pro renewables and kind of renewables advertisers or marketers. And thirdly, that's where climate fits in is, is after those two other priorities. All right, so let's uh, let's move on a little bit. We were talking a bit about sort of federal and state actors um, and the zeitgeist, uh, the energy zeitgeist in uh, in the U.S. There's um, a few interesting uh, figures at play here. Um, Jennifer Granholm, the DOE secretary, who's um, floated this idea of subsidies to keep nuclear open, um, 
John Kerry, who killed the um, Integral Molten Fast Reactor project under Clinton, um, but has said things recently like solving climate change will require technologies that we don't yet have. Um, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, 50% of these reductions might come from new tech. And of course, he points to sort of Bill Gates, Terra Power. Um, th those are sort of the pro-nuclear voices, I think, within the Biden administration. And there's, you know, Gina McCarthy, the former NRDC president and CEO, who is the new uh, and first ever national climate advisor. So how do you see these voices kind of playing out um, within the administration? Are you hopeful? Who do you think is more prominent? Well, give us a little bit of the sort of political game here, if you can, if you're at liberty to speak of such things. Yeah, I guess I don't have like a ton of insider information to divulge, but you know, it, it really is, there's a decent amount of talk and no action right now. So I don't, we're just going to have to wait and see. I think for Granholm, Palisades in Michigan, her home state, is facing a premature closure in 2022. Is she going to step in in time to protect that source of clean energy in her own backyard? Right, right. Um, as far as John Kerry, I mean, all you, all one has to do is look at France in the 70s, like 50 years ago, to know that's simply not true. They were the first sort of decarbonization, successful decarbonization experiment before it was even about decarbonizing. It was about not being reliant um, on oil during the oil crises or as a result of the oil crises. So it, it's like a lot of push. It, it feels like a lot of kicking the can down the road. Like, oh, we need tech that hasn't been invented yet. Oh, it's not going to come from this generation of nuclear power. It's going to be the designs that only exist on paper. Um, there's just not a lot of physical material um, language that's coming out of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So I hope something changes, but I don't think I'm not as optimistic as other pro-nuclear people are about the administration's willingness to help with what actually matters, which is keeping the plants online and deploying the technology that we already have as quickly as possible. And in terms of like the underlying real politique behind that, um, like, do you think this is a concern about sort of like losing or splitting the base? I mean, and, and I guess in every locale, there's different attitudes um, more strongly or weakly held towards nuclear energy. You know, it's interesting to see, um, you know, again, some, like, I think this is, this is very illustrative, right? Like AOC um, talking about the Green New Deal, like the door is open to nuclear, but she, uh, I think fairly actively supported the closure of Indian Point. I mean, there's, a real contradiction that that needs to get sorted out here and a clarification of of you know what the commitment is um but i think because the democrats uh have a lot of green groups associated with them the green left to some degree and there's an anti-nuclear commitment that's kind of fairly pervasive within that scene uh that seems to be a kind of an underlying geopolitical tension or not geopolitical real politique tension um how are you seeing that playing out in 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 various districts in terms of your work with the, with the campaign for Green Nuclear Deal. I saw on your website, you have sort of regional directors and things like that. Um, is there, you know, I, I remember when I was very early on in this game, I was like, all we've got to do is like convince Greta Thunberg and AOC 
and you know they'll become these advocates and then they'll be these thought leaders and they'll they'll shift um you know the environmental movement but i've realized how naive that is yeah i mean that's i i think that was something extremely difficult for me even like emotionally and a lot of people who are pro nuclear and consider themselves on the left have the same experience like that people that we've like really respected voices that we think are really powerful on the left have a completely incoherent position on nuclear and any sort of keeping the door open or it could be a possibility is really just cover for we want to shut the plants down but we want to protect ourselves from the bludgeon of how can you close the door on a technology that's carbon free and that's the basis um, of more than 50 percent of your guys clean energy right is that the stat in the states nuclear is yep. the, yeah almost six or it's 90 percent of our clean electricity and it's almost 60 percent of our electricity in-state electricity mix in illinois but for in the whole illinois. country oh, for the sorry. whole country it's it's 51 or something right, right. yeah right um and about 20% of our total electricity. So I think, you know, where some people might see progress in messaging, maybe I'm just too cynical. I think I'm in general, like a very optimistic person, hence mm -hmm. the campaign for a green nuclear deal. <laughs> but I read that as um, the evolution of anti-nuclearism. I mean, you've seen it a lot too, like, oh, we would be okay with nuclear. It's just not cost effective it just doesn't make sense and and it's like i i would guarantee you that as soon as it becomes cost effective even though i mean ratepayers in georgia are already paying for vogel and their electricity is still cheaper for it and they'll get decades of clean electricity so set mm -hmm. that aside but i think if it did become economically feasible then they would find something else to say right. then it becomes about justice and mining and extractionism, even though we know that nuclear is the best source of technology to minimize environmental degradation, to minimize mining and um, extraction impacts. So again, I'm just all about action. When I see movement at the federal level, then I'll be able to come out and I'll be the first one singing its praises, but Right now, it's all talk, and I don't really trust it. And like with the campaign for Green Nuclear Deal, you have been speaking with with some politicians. Um, are you getting like how are those conversations going? I mean, it's it's much different at the state level than at the federal level, and it it really varies from state to state. So in Illinois, we're very lucky um, in that a lot of office holders on both the left and the right recognize the importance of nuclear for jobs, for clean energy. I mean, some of the most, like the strongest supporters are Republicans who want to help Pritzker in his clean energy goals. That's really something great to see. A lot of Democrats in Chicago recognize the benefit of nuclear power in protecting against air pollution, particularly, you know, in impoverished parts of the state. So that's really great. And 
I think that may be the thing that pushes us over the finish line if we win in Illinois. Mm -hmm. It's different at the federal level. I mean, you have sort of Green New Deal on the one hand, but I don't, that, that's sort of more even culture war, I yeah. would argue. A lot of the serious people in energy policy do not think that pursuing 100% wind, water, solar is, you know, a viable path mm -hmm. and worth talking about. But still, it's very powerful. Like you said, environmental groups in this country are powerful. NRDC gets hundreds of millions of dollars in funding a year. That they, they get 100 million funding a year or they have like assets they worth have, 200 million? They have, they're, have budgets of, I think, okay. like almost $200 million a year. It's, it's insane, especially like, you know, there's this, um, a common accusation against advocates like yourself is that you're a shill of industry. Um, I mean, the nuclear advocates that I know are doing this all for the love, volunteer, getting by on absolute shoestring budgets. I mean, there's there's no greater sort of David and Goliath struggle. And it's very unfortunate that, you know, nuclear advocates need to be pitched against environmental organizations and not, say, fossil interest that, you know, nuclear threatens as well for interest. Uh, sorry, for example. Um, but, you know, getting, getting back to this, this cost issue, I mean, there's a real cost to um, the energy choices that we make. And I think in Texas, you know, where about 60 billion was spent on um, what are called reliably unreliable sources, um, particularly wind and, you know, the $5 billion interconnector that was installed there, um, you know, you're, you're more at risk for consequences from extreme weather blackout. And this isn't, again, you know, this isn't to say that other sources didn't fail. I mean, to be, to be uh, accurate, nuclear failed the least uh, with a single reactor going down. Um, but that um, blackout apparently cost Texas around $200 billion. And you think about, I mean, that's, uh, that's 10 Vogels. 200 lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah, more importantly, right? But I mean, in terms of the economics, those costs pile up. And you, you think about what, you know, if there's proactively invested in reliable clean energy that would come to the rescue at that time. I think that really needs to be factored in beyond carbon abatement costs um, and just ratepayer prices. Um, yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about in Illinois is pointing to Texas. I mean, it wasn't the polar vortex was affecting, you know, most of the middle of the country and all six of our nuclear plants in Illinois were operating at almost full capacity, powering hospitals, schools, homes throughout that entire cold snap while Texas was dealing with a major humanitarian crisis. So these nuclear plants are important. It, you know, it's, it's everything. It's the cost of carbon. It's the reliability. It's the, it's, you know, I mean, mostly those two, if I, it's the jobs, it's the mm -hmm. environmental protection. I saw something, I don't want to I'm a little afraid I haven't uh, memorized these numbers, but I, I was looking at land impacts today or a report that said we would lose like 10 to 15% of our soybean agriculture in Illinois with X percentage of build out of wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's something really important to think about is that the land, the land use, we have some of the most um, like, 
fertile, productive mm -hmm. agriculture in the country and in the world and displacing any of that, it has to be replaced somewhere. I mean, hopefully not deforested parts of the Amazon or, you know, like, right. but seriously, it's important to think about those things. And it gets, it just gets back to energy density. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's maybe close off a little bit um, in our last segment here talking about what's what's coming up. What are you, what are you going to do about it, Maddie, <laughs> in terms of these uh, threatened closures? What are you up to right now? It's a very tight timeline, you were saying like two weeks or something and the legislative assembly is off for the summer or something. Yep. So the spring session ends May 31st. Mm. And so depending on what comes out of that, we'll know if it's enough to keep Byron and Dresden online. And then we'll probably hear the implications for LaSalle and Braidwood as well. So I'm super lucky. Like you said, we have um, sort of regional directors at the Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal Alan Metzger has been doing this in Chicago for over a decade now, pro-nuclear environmentalism and activism. And he is great. He, um, myself, Mark and Paris, who you've had on Decouple, a bunch of nuclear engineering students from UIUC, ANS. We have this big group that's been really pushing hard on the message, just whatever you do, keep the damn plants online. And so we're doing social media campaigns, we're calling legislators, we're sending emails, we're sending postcards, we sent Valentine's on Valentine's Day, pro-nuclear <laughs> Valentine's. And now in this last sort of two-week push, we're holding a stand-up in Springfield on Monday, hmm. just at, like all the legislators need to do is look out their window and they'll see how many jobs we're really talking about when we lose a nuclear plant. And they're so, going to see that because there'll be a thousand construction helmets out there, right? Well, you just gave it away, Chris. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yes. Yes. Um, so we're going to, I don't know. Honestly, we're all, like you said, I do this completely volunteer basis. I shouldn't say that I get like a hundred dollars a month from my loving fans on Patreon, but like, we just sort of scrap, we're scrappy. We just pull this together any way we can. Somehow we're going to display a thousand helmets, um, whether it's on a fence or in a yard, we're, we'll figure it out. But you just got to do what it takes to get it done when 4.3 gigawatts of clean energy is on the line, when Illinois' clean energy future is on the line. Mm -hmm. One of the other stunts that you did for your stand-up uh, that we were talking about in November was this biker rally. Um, <laughs> any, any plans to, to get the bikers out again? They, they are ready to they are mobilized. They're ready to come wherever we're going to be. We thought Springfield, because it's like, that's where the action's going to take place. And I mean, look, even if something comes out on May 31st, that isn't adequate, we still have till September and November till the lights go out on these plants. And you can bet that we are going to continue to fight for them until they're actually offline. Yeah, it was it was really uh, interesting having uh, Izuru and Dietmar on. Um, I gained a huge appreciation for the amount of work 
um, and how, I don't know what to call it. Like it's, I call it professionalism, but it's truly amateur for the love, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. really good reports. They, they managed to break into the New York times, um, and a number of other, uh, media organizations. I think that's a big challenge, um, that nuclear advocates face. I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, I think that it's a very interesting and controversial story. One would think that reporters would be all over that, maybe up readership. I'm not sure if it's because they get angry letters of complaint from well-funded environmental groups or, you know, whether they interpret us as being shills and therefore, hey, there's just the, the evil nuclear industry's way of, of sort of getting free advertising. I mean, what's your take on that? And what's your success been like at, at getting, especially on the Illinois issue, into the media? Yeah, again, we benefit in Illinois from being slightly less anti-nuclear all around than like New York or California say. So I've had an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune and just like two weeks ago in the Daily Herald, um, the Mothers for Nuclear in Chicago have had a piece in the Tribune, ANS students. So Luckily, we're able to sort of get into the papers, the biggest papers in the city. And that's right. been really great. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. And to some extent, I don't blame people who do have that read on me or some of the advocates and that like, when I had to submit testimony to the Illinois legislators um, or the public utility commission hearing on some of these bills, it's me and all of the fossil fuel industry coming out against this bill. And so, yeah, that, that doesn't look great as much as I can say like, no, I'm the true environmentalist. Mm -hmm. I don't take any energy money at all. I'm completely industry free. This is out of concern for the environment, for carbon emissions, for jobs. Like at the end of the day, it's me backed by all the natural gas and coal lobbyists in the state. So, and so what's their role in this? They're, are they opposing the closure of the plants or is that what you were trying to say there? Or? No, no, no. It basically that um, in a lot of the clean energy bills, they're obviously okay. against them. And right. so I'm for clean energy, but against clean energy bills that don't focus on protecting Got nuclear you. plants. So that, the Sija versus the Suja. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. And the, the really great thing about Suja, Kuja, I've never gotten, I've never known what the official, official name is, but. This is the union one, the clean or the clean yeah, the union jobs association, climate, climate union jobs. Job okay. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> but, the one you like. Yes, that's the one I like. And because it goes, I mean, it prioritizes protecting the nuclear plants and properly recognizes the importance of them to Illinois' clean energy future. That's is that because the unions see the, the kind of jobs disparity between nuclear and its clean alternatives? Yeah, I mean, most of the unionized jobs in clean energy in the state are the nuclear plants. It's like 1,500 full-time unionized employees between byron and dresden right um, so this is this is again this is like that mythical um nostalgic intergenerational well-paying um industrial jobs that basically i'm trying to think of a sector outside of nuclear where that still exists where you might go and work at the same plant as your dad or your grandpa make great wages support your family and without a college degree in a lot of cases right um so that, yeah, the outside of the nuclear sector, I, I really don't know. But 
another really important part of this bill of Kuja is that they have basically labor standards higher than the industry for renewables development in the states to make sure that the benefit of deploying solar and wind stays, you know, in state rather than solely being for hedge funds and banks. Right. Um, it requires them to have some, or I think, I, I don't know exactly what percentage of union labor on those projects. It also talks about like decarbonizing schools and electric school buses. I mean, it's a really great bill. In the end, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be sort of a piecemeal energy package that pulls from all of the proposed bills. I think there are six right now, and we'll see sort of a mashup of all six. And so really, it's not even just being behind any one bill at this point. It's just, it's got to be the nukes. It right. has to be protecting the nukes. And then, I mean, you mentioned sort of, um, you know, who shows up at these hearings um, in terms of activists, you know, pro or anti-nuclear, um, various energy interests. But I think something that's really struck me is the fact that, you know, both um, in Ontario and really in many, basically in most jurisdictions that aren't like France with like a, a national sort of um, electricity sector organization like Electricité de France, EDF. There's probably other examples I'm not thinking of in the Asian countries. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in Canada and the US anyway, um, you know, the, the entities that own the nuclear plants own fossil plants. And so there's this sort of natural conflict. If you're making more money off gas, then I ah, will let one go, right? Um, so, and in terms of how that translates into, into lobbying, um, it seems like there's not really a strong industry voice anyway for nuclear and there are associations but in terms of what i should say is like utility lobbying kind of voice that just doesn't really exist for nuclear in the way that like the anti-nuclear people imagine it anyway totally yeah i mean utilities are just they have that con that same conflict of interest everywhere where they're developing renewables and natural gas and have coal plants alongside their nuclear fleet so it's really just what's making money and what isn't. Illinois is a particularly fun political battle when it comes to the utilities because last year it came out that ComEd was involved in a bribery scandal with the Democratic Speaker of the House. Which what's ComEd, sorry, for international? It's, um, it's the distribution side ah, of Exxon. Gotcha. Uh, so... It, you know, not their generating asset company, but the actual utility. And so nobody wants to be seen as helping Exelon at this point. So right. I, I can under, or a reason that the governor would be so sort of stingy on these subsidies and really reluctant to help the nuclear plants is he doesn't want to look like he's in the pocket of the utility, big utility, you know, as Robert Bryce says, Nobody wants to bake a cake for Exelon right now. Right, right. Um, so that's complicated things further where they're just sort of quiet and all they can do is respond to say like, this would be adequate for reversing the decision. This probably wouldn't, but they're not fighting. They're just kind of sitting on the sidelines watching this go down. And 
to, I don't know if that helps or hurts, yeah. like that they just stay out of our way and we can just battle it out with the environmental groups or if they, obviously it would be helpful to have, like you said, sort of a fully pro-nuclear industry voice in this, right. but that's not what we're seeing. Right, right. No, I, I was... I had a filmmaker friend who was looking for funding for some like post-production stuff on his film. And uh, he went to some of the utilities and they were like, well, you don't say nice things about coal and part of our fleet is coal. So no, <laughs> you know? right. so, so that was interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, just in closing, I guess that there's this essay that Ted Nordhaus wrote that I, that I really enjoyed. It was called uh, the empty radicalism of the climate apocalypse. And he kind of imagined, I think, um, I forget the guy's first name, but Inslee, who was really kind of the climate candidate for the democratic party, ultimately unsuccessful and imagined you sort of, you know, if you're really going to take climate seriously, what that might look like in terms of like a bold policy, and it would involve nationalization of the grid and a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of measures. But it's just interesting, like how humble that can be in terms of, you know, the Biden administration, at least signaling, um, I think what Bryce calls the bully pulpit, um, that there should be a moratorium on nuclear plant closures and premature plant closures that that's a pretty momentous step. And, in, you know, in the setting of New York, where more Wind and solar were, I mean, so more capacity generation was lost at Indian Point from one of the reactors being closed, the last one, than the entire output of the, the wind and solar fleet. I mean, again, in my head, I was just like, this is the equivalent of someone taking a hammer, smashing every single solar panel, you know, taking a cutting torch, chopping down every single wind turbine in a couple hours in one morning. Um, and I think that's, you know, what explains um, the outrage. And, and again, for me, the kind of lack of, composure on this issue. I really don't want to be a yes man on any interview, but um, you know, this as someone who's very concerned about climate, clean air, you know, good jobs, um, it's it's just really clear <laughs> the tragedy right. of, of these of these closures and threatened closures. I think um like the piece that you alluded to before by Emmett Penny that just came out yesterday really does a great job of summarizing the situation is that we have this inheritance right. from decades before and we've done a terrible job of stewarding it mm -hmm. and what we really need to be doing is you know delivering more of these clean energy cathedrals because it really is going to shape the future of mm -hmm. what our country of what world looks like I mean it, it's that big of a deal this isn't just some I think a lot of my friends and family who don't fully understand what I do think it's weird that I get emotional over a power plant, but this isn't just a power plant. This is the American dream, a clean energy future. Mm -hmm. It matters each and every one of these plants. So as much as I'm excited to put out some bold new plans for the federal level, like write more policy papers, get some feedback, continuing to push what I think is possible for nuclear in the country, the, the most, most, most important thing is protecting what we have. And that's, that's what the carbon abatement cost metric would say $25 a ton. Yep. <laughs> Already just, just, uh, for our listeners, um, we'll put this in the show notes. Um, but tell me a, you know, how people can join and follow uh, campaign for green new deal and B, how they can get involved in Illinois, both if they're local or if they're international. 
um, because again, um, air pollution and climate does not respect boundaries. Absolutely. So you can follow us by signing up on the form on our website, gndcampaign.org. Um, so I'll be sending out updates, especially about Illinois, and then going forward, just a bunch of the publications that are in the pipeline. And then in terms of Illinois, honestly, tweeting, social media really helps sending emails. We have people, the nuclear in New York team has been really active in getting in touch with our politicians. We have friends in California fighting the Diablo fight who are emailing. And so as many emails as you can find, if you want, please email me at madison at gndcampaign.org. And I will send you CJA co-sponsors that we're trying to get in touch with phone numbers. But at this point, just letting Illinois know that the country is watching us mm -hmm. and what we do is going to matter um, is just of the utmost importance. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly short notice, but you can imagine solidarity demonstrations happening in these other areas as well. But yeah. Okay, Maddie, so much we could talk about, but we're just over an hour now. Um, a pleasure having you on um, and looking forward uh, to seeing how this goes. Um, yeah, I'm going to be busy, very busy over the next two weeks, but I'm excited to catch up with you after that so we can talk about more of the aspirational politics exactly. I've been working out and less on the doom and gloom and um, battle. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll play some offense and, and less defense going forward. Right. Okay, Maddie, all the best. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care, Chris. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.